0: We'll be in Genesis chapter 10. I won't read the entire uh, chapter, but I'll read uh, select verses so that you get an idea of what is happening. Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, to Baal, Meshek, and Tiris. Down to verse five. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Down to verse eight. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Down to verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Tishim also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Aparchad, Lud, and Aram. Down to verse 31. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. In 1946, a man by the name of Truett Cathy opened up a little diner in Atlanta called the Dwarf House. And uh, this dwarf house uh, with a little diner has not stayed a little diner. Over the years, uh, this dwarf house developed into what is now a large restaurant chain called Chick-fil-A. Thousands of restaurants across the United States. If you were to look at all of these restaurants that were birthed out of that little small beginning, if you were to go into one, if you go into one and experience the food and service, you'll see that it reveals a lot about their founder. We arrive here in Genesis 10 after Noah and his small family get off the ark and begin to spread abroad on the face of the earth. And this little small family by Genesis 10 is now no longer a small family. They have multiplied, they have spread across the earth. And as we look at this this new beginning of the world in Genesis 10, the nations, the people groups, the culture, it reveals a lot about their creator, So what does the beginning of the world that we read of here in Genesis 10 reveal about God? First, we're going to see that it reveals God's sovereignty. And by sovereignty, I mean God's power, his control. We see that all of these people are spread over the earth, and we read in other parts of Scripture that this is God's doing. It's It's an act of his sovereign hand. Deuteronomy 32, 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And then to Acts 17, 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The birth of the nations, as we know it today, here in Genesis 10, was a product of God's sovereign hand. These nations, these peoples, can be traced to modern-day places, modern-day cultures, modern-day nations, and what we read is that this is God's sovereign hand doing this, and it's no different from Genesis 10 to what it is today. That where you live, when you live, is under God's sovereign hand. That he's determined that with great purpose. So we see God's sovereignty in just the way that uh, the dwelling places of these nations unfolds. But also we see a second way in which God's sovereignty surfaces in chapter 10. Many of, or a number of the peoples and nations in this passage were really bitter enemies of Israel, bitter enemies of God's people. We see in verse 6, the descendants of Ham. Well, Ham was the father of Canaan, and Canaan was a descendant whose descendants became the Canaanites. And they were constantly uh, enemies and bitter enemies of Israel. And then we read, starting in verse 8, of this man named Nimrod who built the godless cities of Babylon and Nineveh. And Babylon and Nineveh played a major role in Israel's history. Both of those cities, Nineveh, who was, uh, which was in Assyria, both of those cities took the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel into exile brutally. And yet what we read in Jeremiah 29.4 that chronicles the exile by Babylon, we see that God was the one that actually sent them into exile, that God sent his people into exile to humble them, to humble them and to bring them back to repentance, back to him. And what a comfort God's sovereignty must have been when his exiles were in these foreign lands, to know that God was sovereign over these godless cities, sovereign over evil, that God is Lord of all, that he's even sovereign Over evil, and he uses evil for his good purposes. A sharp knife can bring incredible harm or it can bring incredible good. Now, what determines whether a sharp knife brings harm or a sharp knife brings good? It's who's holding it. It's who's holding it. Right, if, if a sharp knife is in the hand of a murderer, that's going to bring harm. But if a sharp knife is in the hand of a skilled surgeon, that's going to bring good. Evil in the hands of Satan or the devil, which the scriptures say, is a murderer from the beginning, brings harm. But evil in the hands of God, who the scriptures say is sovereign over the devil, brings good. This pandemic is like a sharp knife. And I will tell you that at times in my own life, in the midst of this pandemic, because of the pain, because of the hurt, I have wondered whose hand this pandemic is in. And yet in those moments of deep pain, when I begin asking that question, I'm reminded of God's word, And I'm reminded by the Holy Spirit working in my heart that this pandemic is firmly in the hands of our good, gracious, and promise-keeping God. That as much pain as you may be experiencing, as much as the cut may hurt deeply, you can be assured that this pandemic is in the hands of our good God and that he's using it to bring about your good. God is sovereign. That's the first thing we learn about the beginning of the world here in Genesis 10, about the character of God, that he is sovereign. But second, we see that this chapter, this beginning of the world in Genesis 10, reveals his diversity, reveals his diversity. This is a list of of nations and peoples and cultures that are very diverse. And as I said, you can trace from these Beginnings, you can trace to modern day cultures and modern day nations that are very culturally diverse. We see it three times in this chapter. Verse five, from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then again in verse 31, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Why the emphasis? Well, there's an emphasis here because there's a diversity of people. There's a diversity of culture. And that's a beautiful thing. The diversity of culture that you see In this city, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your school, it's not a problem. It's a beautiful thing because it's part of God's design. You say, how do we know that? Well, at the end of the story in Revelation, we read in Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation— from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, there will be tremendous cultural and ethnic diversity in the new heavens and the new earth. And if that's what heaven's gonna look like because that's the way God has designed it, then we better get used to it now. Cultural diversity which is designed by God, and is a beautiful thing, produces different expressions of worship. And and that's obvious that there are, let me give you a couple examples. There are some people that would show up at our worship service, and they would say, man, you all are pretty stiff. You guys don't move a whole lot in your worship service. And there's some of you that would go to somebody else's worship service and say, wow, you guys move a little bit too much, a little bit too much dancing going on here. Diverse culture produces diverse expression. I'll tell you the scriptures are uh, very firm on elements that should be in a worship service, but the how those elements get expressed, there's tremendous freedom. That's why if you went to a worship service in Africa, it would look very different than our worship service. And that's not a problem. That's a good thing. It's beautiful. And of course, the nations are here in Jacksonville. There is quite a bit of diversity in Jacksonville. And therefore, worship services and people groups and nations, nations that have different cultural uh, uh, norms that are beautiful for the Lord you know, some have said that Christianity is a cultural straitjacket. And by that, they mean that it forces people from diverse cultures into one single iron mold. Now, the reason that there's a stereotype of that is because of the blots on the record and the history of Christianity. But Christianity. Is actually more adaptive to diverse cultures than, than many of the other, or that any of the other worldviews and religions. Let me give you an example from the, the, uh, the spread, the pattern of how Christianity has spread around the world. If you take Islam, for example, the, the center and the majority of Islam is still in its place of origin, which is the Middle East. Or if you look at the demographic center of Hinduism and Buddhism. That's still in the the same place. But if you look at Christianity, you would see that it started off with the Jews in Jerusalem. It moved to the Hellenists in the broader Mediterranean region. Then it moved to Western Europe. Then it moved to North America. And today, the, the vast population of Christians are in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. One African scholar was asked, his name's Laman Sana. He was asked why Christianity grew so explosively in Africa. Listen to his answer. People sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred, nor their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. And then listen to this. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Historian Andrew Walls says it this way. Cultural diversity was built into the Christian faith. In Acts 15, which declared that the new Gentile Christians didn't have to enter Jewish culture. The converts had to work out a Hellenistic way of being a Christian. So no one owns the Christian faith. There is no Christian culture the way there is an Islamic culture, which you can recognize from Pakistan to Tunisia to Morocco. So what's the takeaway? Takeaway is this that we are called to appreciate cultural diversity, to appreciate the beauty of it, to not judge it, to not criticize it, nor to try to, to force it into some iron mold. We learn to embrace now what we will embrace for eternity. The book of Revelation indicates that we will retain our cultural differences in the new heavens and the new earth. And that means that every human culture from God has something good and a strength that can enrich humanity. So what does the beginning of the world here in Genesis 10 reveal about God? First, it reveals his sovereignty. Second, it reveals his diversity. But third, we see that it reveals God's concern. And you say, huh? How does this chapter of a lot of names, long genealogy, reveal God's concern or who he is concerned about? Well, in Luke 10, we read that Jesus sends out 72 people to every town and every place to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And you read that and you go, why 72? Where does 72 come from? That seems like a very random number. Well, there are 72 people and people groups in the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 10, which means that Jesus was connecting his mission to the nations that are birthed in the very beginning in Genesis 10. And symbolically, Appointing an ambassador for every nation. God's heart beats for the nations. He's concerned for the nations, the nations that were birthed in the beginning all under one creator. Now, if you read this and remember the end of chapter nine, you may ask, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Noah had three sons, right? Shem, Japheth, and Ham. We read that God blessed Shem. He poured his blessing out on Shem. He he poured uh, his redemption out on Shem and his family line, but on Canaan, or on Ham, who was the father of Canaan, he poured out a curse. And you say, well, it doesn't sound like God has concern for Canaan or the Canaanites. He put a curse on them. You've got to remember that God's choosing Shem, God's electing Shem was not a choosing towards privilege. It was a choosing towards mission. He elected Shem and his family towards mission to reach the nations. And that's what we see happening in the early parts of the scripture. Shem gives birth eventually to Abraham who gives birth to Israel who one day would be brought into the promised land, into the land of Jericho. And as they come in, we read of that story where this Canaanite woman, a descendant of Ham and of Canaan, a Canaanite woman, a prostitute named Rahab, sees what God has done for his people, sees him lovingly save his people and protect his people and care for his people, and she says, I want in. So she places her faith in God by hanging that scarlet cord out her window, which is, has parallels to the Passover. So what we see here is, God chooses a person, Shem, and in a family, and then Abraham, which births into a nation, Israel, that is supposed to be the light to the nations. Israel was elected to be on mission to the nations and to be a light. Israel failed in that mission, and that's where we see ultimately the purpose of all these genealogies that you read in the Old Testament. What they're doing is searching for the one. They're searching for the seed of the woman out of Genesis 15 that would crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and bring salvation. So all these genealogies eventually end in the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And so the many of Israel by the time Jesus is on the cross, is narrowed down to one because everyone fled. He had no followers at the cross. It was a chosen man of one, Jesus Christ, who would save the world with no help from humanity. And then out of that, we see Jesus then moving out to redeem the nations. And so what we see in the book of Acts as Jesus' earthly mission continues, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we see something really phenomenal happen. In Acts chapter eight, the Ethiopian eunuch who trusts Christ, the Ethiopian eunuch was a descendant of Ham, descendant of the Canaanites, coming to know Jesus. And then you had Peter and Paul who were descendants of Shem. And then you had in Acts chapter 10, you have Cornelius, who was a descendant of Japheth. God's heart beats for the nations. God's heart beats for the world. And so we see in Genesis 10 that the world comes before Israel. And out of concern for the salvation of the nations, God chooses Israel to be a light to the world, ultimately narrowing him down to Jesus. I love how one Old Testament scholar puts it. He says, the idea of the people of God implies that they have to regard all nations as future partakers with them of the same salvation and to embrace them with an interest of hopeful love unheard of elsewhere in the ancient world. Benjamin Kwashi, Christian leader in Nigeria, tells what I would say is a riveting story of how the gospel came to his hometown. He says, missionaries came to my home area of Nigeria in 1907. One of them was a man named Reverend Fox. Reverend Fox was a professor at Cambridge University. And he says, when he arrived, his walk with Christ was so deep that many were led to Christ said he founded a church and then moved about 10 kilometers away to Amper, which he says was my hometown, and he founded a church there. And then this is striking. He says, how a first-class person from the University of Cambridge was communicating to illiterates, I don't know. But God suddenly gave him favor, and people were turning to Jesus Christ. So many people came to Christ that Reverend Fox had to call his younger brother, who was a physician in Cambridge, because he needed medical help. And as his brother came, Reverend Fox grew ill and died. And when his brother got there, his brother grew ill and died. And so the church mission society wrote to their father, the father of these two brothers, who was also a pastor. They let him know that his two sons had died and. Benjamin Kwashi says what happened after that was even more amazing, more astounding. This pastor and his wife, they sold their land and property and took the proceeds to this mission society, this church society. And they said this, as much as we grieve the death of our two sons, we will only be consoled if the purpose for which they died continues. They gave the money and they walked away. Benjamin Kwashi describes later of looking through the profiles of these two young missionaries that brought the gospel to his hometown. And he says this, they both had first-class educations and degrees from the best schools. They died as young men. The oldest was only 32. They gave up everything to serve Jesus and bring the gospel to my country. Were they crazy? No. They had heard what Jesus had said. They believed it, and they were willing to stake their whole lives on the truth of Jesus' words. If you're a follower of Christ, then God sovereignly brought someone into your life to bring the gospel to you. And if you grew up in a Christian home, then God sovereignly picked, chose someone to bring the gospel to one of your ancestors. Talk about reaching the nations. You don't have to be a professional missionary to go reach the nations. The nations are right here in Jacksonville. All around us, whether it's in your cubicle at work, your neighborhood, your school, neighbors are all around you that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ who came to save the world. At the end of the book of Jonah, God says this about that godless city, Nineveh, that is listed here in Genesis chapter 10. He says this, to Jonah, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Oh, may God give us a heart like his and great concern for the people around us. And may he give us sovereignly ordained opportunities like this pandemic to share the love of God, the concern that he has for your neighbors displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and a hope that is indestructible. Let's pray. Father, you have great concern for the nations. You have great concern for your world that we see birthed here in Genesis chapter 10. We thank you for sending Jesus to be the savior of the world. Father, we ask that you would mold and shape our hearts to beat like yours, to beat for the nations, to beat for our neighbors around us. In this pandemic where there are all kinds of questions about security and life and what life is all about, would you give us opportunities, sovereign, ordained opportunities to share the good news of Jesus? recognizing that if we're in Christ, it's because, Father, you sent somebody to us or you sent somebody to one of our ancestors long ago to bring the gospel through our families. Oh, Father, would you break our hearts? What breaks yours? And would we see your gospel go forth And would we see people come to Christ just as Benjamin Kwashi got to look back and see what birthed this revival in his hometown in Nigeria to see so many coming to Christ. Would we see that in our town here in Jacksonville? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.